0: quick point of personal privilege. Yes. I can handle things. I'm smart. This is Armstrong and Getty. Pretty damn cool.
1: He
2: is Armstrong and Getty. You're
3: listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. I assume that if we give you a state of permanent happiness, we can count on you to consider us your favorite morning show from here on out. That seems like a fair bargain. Uh, but before we get to that, oh, we've got a uh, Dairy Princess coming in studio next hour because it's National Butter Day, so stay tuned for that. Us And in... I'm told she's going to churn butter? Why would you stay tuned for us eating butter? I'm not exactly sure why. I am huh. looking forward to it. How many of you have ever uh, never had fresh-made butter? Never I'm had not, it. I'm not sure I have. Or so it's n- been years. Nobody but me, having grown up in Wisconsin, has had yeah. fresh-made butter. You're really going to enjoy it. Of course, Marshall has cause just because... Was the only thing optional.
2: Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Back in the day, any chance the Dairy Princess has
3: some goats? What are we going to ask? We can do a little yoga. Prior, prioritize these three things; it will improve your life, maybe even save it. They've crunched the numbers: smoking, drinking, exercise, heart problems are not predictors of a person's longevity. They play roles, but you can't predict anything from those. Wow. Whereas a person's close relationships and social integration do predict longevity. Mm. There's a correlation. That's what psychologist Steven Pinker has discovered in researching the impact that our human connections have on all aspects of our well-being. So this is one of the three important things we need to do. Um, Those with intimacy in their lives, those with support systems and frequent face-to-face interactions, not only are physically and emotionally healthier, they live longer. So think about that right now. Do you have those? Good. If you don't, You'll be dead soon. And you're unhappy right now, anyway. Seek him out. Make it a priority. It's why women who tend to prioritize spending time with friends more than men live
2: an average of six years longer. Did you know that? Women who prioritize, prioritize spending time with friends as opposed to a dude. Yeah. Interesting. Live six years longer. Hanging out with dudes will kill you. And by the way, it's not enough to text or email
3: in terms of having these social connections. The actual health benefits of socializing are only achieved through person-to-person contact. Face-to-face contact releases a whole cascade of neurotransmitters, and it's like a vaccine that protects you today and into the future against all kinds of different things, aging, diseases, etc. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. Contact with other humans. So that's one of the three main things for being happy. So,
2: you know. I don't know if you're going to change anything about that. But Those of us who are a tad misanthropic, I know Thomas Jefferson wrote quite eloquently that his natural tendency was to isolate himself, but it made him miserable and weird and hostile, so he forced himself to uh, have social engagements.
3: Although if you have a family, you have a certain amount of human contact that is you know, built in, Right. obviously, as sure. opposed to if you're going home to a house or apartment alone. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing when to turn off your smartphone enriches your life. They uh, never there. I know (laughs) as we just discovered the uh, face to face contact with human beings has all kinds of benefits. You don't get that through the online stuff. Um, People who spend time on social networks, dating apps, online news sites report being less happy. The technology has taken away what they call our stopping cues. Most of the things that we've done for pleasure throughout history, like reading a book or watching a movie, they had an end. But scrolling on the phone is endless. Wow. And apparently we don't know when to stop doing that. Wow, yeah. I mean, even if you're a glutton, at some point you can't eat anymore. Right. As recently as 2007, technology took up a tiny sliver of our personal time. As of now, it takes up almost all of our personal time on average. Isn't that something? Went from almost a tiny bit in 2007 to almost all of our personal time now. Uh, those who did set finite rules for the technology use, like never using it at dinner or putting it on airplane mode when you're out on the weekends, are able to enjoy life more. Life becomes more colorful, richer,
2: you have better conversations, you connect with people, blah, blah, blah. You know, my, uh, my youngster was talking the other day about how few of her friends have family dinner as a priority. I was really surprised by that. Yeah. Um, that's always been a big thing at our place. I mean, it, dinner table events. That's right, Mitt. Sometimes it can be really difficult with people's schedules, but essentially the rule is every night we're going to try unless somebody has a specific commitment otherwise.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I certainly, I and mean, we do that. And too. no
2: phones at the table.
3: We do that too, just because, you know, I think because I grew up that way, but, um,
1: like, I no talking on the phone and you can still have your phone there and like check Twitter and <laughs> stuff. Or? No
2: way. I see that thing. It's going in the oven it um, in I, the microwave. I have known, Science
3: lesson, kids. I have known, I remember when I'd be around friends when I got older, and I'd be so shocked to see this. There was no expectation of people eating together. You just, when you got hungry, you went to the fridge and got something to eat. And mm. dad might be eating over here, and mom might eat later, and it just. It's a little thing called freedom. There was no expectation of getting together to eat, which was foreign to me. But I think it's very interesting and, you know, you can disagree with this and do whatever you want, which is the great thing about being a human being in America. But uh, that the idea that any of this stuff online does not mean you have social connections. All of this Instagramming, Facebooking, all that sort of stuff does not give you any of the benefit of social interaction right it's it's an amusement yeah yeah only an amusement
1: and the tricky part of it is it very much feels like it scratches that it sure feels like it fills that void but it's it's just it's a very different kind of thing to your being to actually look somebody in the eye and have those same conversations i've I've been
2: referring to it as
1: empty calories for
2: uh, quite some time yes
1: michael i was just saying it mimics the
2: experience and a lot of people say hey it's good enough it's close enough yeah
3: I can see how that well, would they'll
2: die miserable and alone. Michael, is and, that good enough? And here's it.
3: Here's the final of the three. Kay. And this is something that uh, thinkers, religious people, philosophers have known forever. Yet everyone continues to ignore it. Chasing meaning, not happiness is what really matters. The quest for happiness does not make you happy. Constantly evaluating your own happiness is actually contributing to feelings of hopelessness and depression Happiness is a fickle emotion fleeting based on a moment or an experience. The only thing that really makes us uh, happy is uh, having meaning. There's actually a couple of things that fit in with that. Four forms of meaning. Belonging, purpose, transcendence, and storytelling. Transcendence is uh, uh, something that gets you out of just thinking about your own life. Mm-hmm. Anything that's that. Um Once again, having a family forces you into some of those, anyway. A lot of the way we used to structure society, for instance, fill these three things, just automatically did. Right. And then we abandoned them because we're smarter, I guess, than all of human history.
2: Well, yeah, or just had the ability to fulfill all our desires, so went ahead. And or we're dancing at the end of the strings of various electronics companies <laughs> that are making enormous profits. But I really liked that sentence. Happiness is a fickle emotion fleeting
3: based on a moment or experience. Mm. It doesn't actually make you happier.
2: What was that list with the transcendence and storytelling? And These are the four things that give your life meaning. Belonging. Yeah. Belonging. Okay. Having a, you know, okay. Purpose. Yes. Transcendence and storytelling. Yeah, that, that last one's interesting. Yeah, I don't quite understand it.
3: It was a
1: man from Nantucket. I don't quite understand the storytelling that's a, part. That's the start of a limerick, not necessarily a storytelling. But well, no, I, I think the storytelling aspect is how it's one of the, the greatest divides between us and, and other beasts, right? It's our, it's our ability to communicate. Well, I was laying in my doghouse today licking my genitals. Yes, and so, then, uh, <laughs> you're not going to believe what happened.
2: <laughs> Fly flew in, I swatted <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's the, it's our abilities to tell stories, to teach lessons, and and pass on knowledge that right. is, it is very fascinating. And obviously it fits
3: least, in yeah. with the face-to-face contact and the human interaction. They all... All three and of belonging. these kind of... Yeah, yeah. All three of these kind of fit together. Yeah. So there you go. Live long and prosper with that huh.
2: knowledge. Or be made extra miserable by the knowledge that you're not doing those things. But that's a motivator. That's the sort of unhappiness that leads to happiness. Unless you seek happiness. Then you're screwed.
3: Seeking happiness is a, well, the kind of happiness people generally talk about in the 21st century is just a waste of time. Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong
2: and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Three, two, one. Put down your hot dogs on 75. Some things change. Some <laughs> remain the same. 75 hot dogs and buns. A world record. 75 Beneficial hot dogs 75. 75. 75.
3: <laughs> so that was from the hot dog eating contest on 4th of July. A family tradition of my house to watch that on ESPN. George Shea, former friend of the Armstrong and Getty show. Former. Mentioning at the winning seventy-five hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> he was brilliant as always in his introductions oh and uh, his ability everything. to commit
1: to uh, whatever event he is currently participating in yes, is awesome.
3: It was absolutely fantastic. But uh, anyway, here's Joey Chestnut after setting a new world record of seventy-five dogs. It was. I, I knew I was fast in the beginning. It was like blistering speed, and uh, the the dogs were cooked really well today. And. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it kind of minute like six is where, where I really missed the crowd because they they're pumped up, yeah. and uh, I, I hit a wall and it took me a, a little bit more work to get through it. Um, and uh,
1: yeah, this is a crazy year, and I'm happy I was able to get a record.
3: With a couple minutes to go, he was on pace to hit a hundred. Oh no! Yeah, no. And then he just kind of stopped, and his eyes got buggy. Yeah, <laughs> like, as like, they
1: would uh-oh. if if I am in the competitive <laughs> eating circuit. And somehow in the back of my mind, I know my max is a hundred hot dogs in 10 minutes. It is beneficial to my career to break my record 10 consecutive years. Oh yeah, absolutely. Than to just set the benchmark something what? I can never top. You're right?
3: absolutely right. Cause he always breaks it by like ad dog yeah. or two.
2: Yeah. So take it from an old athlete, Sean. You never know when injury is going to jump up and get you and your career is over.
3: But yeah, yeah, he makes his money by being a draw at whatever state fair or county fair he goes to. (laughs) And if he just blows it out of the water right away, then. It would be no fun to go watch him eat 80 after he ate 100. <laughs> in fact, that you'd, you'd feel like he got let
2: down. The perception that he's on the decline, too, Yeah. as lunatic as that is, eating 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes would be like lifting a million pounds. <laughs> For the average person, or running a marathon in five minutes, running a thousand miles an hour,
3: right?
0: I mean, it's
2: so beyond. Oh yeah, it's so, incomprehensible. So they went
3: back. They've been doing this for a hundred some years, going back to the eighteen hundreds. and like the first, really? The, yeah, and the first record was like four. <laughs> so, um, in the so here's your average winning. You want it? Yeah, here's your average winning numbers by decade. In the seventies, the average winning person ate ten. What? <laughs> well, I couldn't eat 10 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Not a chance. Not a chance. Nope. I could eat 10 hot dogs in 10 minutes.
2: That's what I'm telling I, you. It's I like don't... lifting a million pounds.
3: <laughs> I couldn't eat a hot dog a minute for 10 minutes. No. And then it went up very slowly. In the 80s, it rose clear up to 12. <laughs> in the 90s, it was at 19, which is, you know, getting up there. But then Kobayashi came on the scene in oh, the 2000s. great Kobayashi. It went up to 51. Man. In the 10s, it was 66, and I imagine for this decade, it'll be in the 70s. Wow.
1: He's practically playing a new game. He like, is he, he, playing he, a new game. Oh, my goodness. The, the jump from, what was that, 12 to 50? Yeah. yeah. Well,
3: yeah. that's Kobayashi. Um. So now they have a... This is probably way too much talk about eating hot dog eating. Contest. I don't know. But they, We've come this far. But they now have a female... <laughs> because they used to have the men and women eat together, and it was yes. kind of, okay, the dudes are here, and you're eating your It's tw- unfair. You're eating your twin. Right. But now they have a separate division, so they had the women's first which I thought was
2: a better way to do it. And Have they dealt with the old transgender question.
3: <laughs> but they So they had the women's first, and they kind of make it Joey Chestnut and this woman whose name I don't remember. It's like being champion of the WNBA. Nikki Sudo. Okay. Anyway, so they're like the co-champions. You got a man and woman. So not a good idea to broaden the appeal and everything. Sure. Like. But yeah. she ate 30. Why can a guy eat 45 more hot dogs than the best woman in the world how can there be a woman who
2: eats 30 (laughs) marry that woman oh she's a keeper she is a keeper of
3: course as i pointed out to my family the second place to joey chestnut was like 45 so i mean there there's only one joey chestnut you eliminate
2: him and it goes way down right so true yeah hey go ahead and play clip number six would you sean this is the uh, new female champion
3: I've just been told in my ear that 48 and a half was the official was total.
0: Amazing. How do you feel? I feel great. I'm sure the physical effects will kick in, in a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where was the one where they, they like uh, act as if it's a real sport, Sean? I love that clip.
3: Man, Ch- Joey Chestnut, was. it didn't look like he was going to make it. Because he was at the record was seventy four and he was at like seventy two and they're like counting on 9, nine, eight and he's got two in his hands. And he's like looking at him and he just shoves oh, them off. No. <laughs> the- <laughs> and then when the bell rang, he had to. I don't know if you've ever eaten too fast or drank too much or whatever. He put his hands on the table and kind of was like taking breaths and had a look on his face like you know when you got to really talk yourself out of upchucking. Oh, like, he boy. was really working to keep her That's under
2: control. That's called though. a reversal of fortune in yeah. the uh, competitive eating yeah. world. Do you have that clip I was looking at? Five, for?
1: four, three, two, one, go! And
2: we, are, and we are underway, the 2020 men's division of the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. It's been, it's been
3: something else to get this off the ground, and I hope that uh, MLE's been able to help our peers across the
2: sports vertical, MLB, NFL, show them the way that you can have live sports here, and we all got to <laughs> figure it out competitive hot dog eating just declared itself not only a peer of, but really a leader of across the sports vertical a mentor for the NFL, the NBA and major league baseball. That's beautiful.
3: Well, taking it seriously is part of the charm of the whole thing, acting like it's very important. That we, 400 pound rapper that's in it every
1: year—he doesn't even come close to eating that many hot yeah, dogs. So being yeah. big has nothing to do with no, it. No, this the the female champion, Mickey Sudo. She's just barely over 100 pounds.
2: Wow, amazing! Well, she was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> breaking news! Breaking news! Oh we have breaking news! Brandon.
1: This is breaking news! This is breaking news! Hey. Vacation is over, all right? He's still rattled from all the fireworks yeah. over the 4th.
2: Oh, and yeah, that's yeah, right. Our breaking yeah. news donkey, very sensitive. Yeah, well, he's got those huge ears. Anyway, oh, uh, the, the great, and I mean this, the great, Charlie Daniels has passed. Oh. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He actually had a long career, great songs. He's a whale of a musician. Uh, but he has passed. It's a shame. He'll be missed.
3: I'll have to tell my son that. I was really hoping to get out to because uh, he played. He was playing locally regularly, like Tahoe area. Oh, really? And I know m- m- my youngest especially would have loved to see him sing. Devil oh. went down to Georgia live. He would have just yeah. been blown away by
2: that. Yeah, uh, eighty three years old. That's not that old. No. Who was I? I read uh, too many rock star autobiographies, although I enjoy them. Uh, enjoy them. Who was I? Read? It might have been Keith Richards. I one of your like giants of rock was talking about playing with Charlie Daniels when he was a country guitar player and a rock and roll guitar player. Just how talented he was and what a solid musician he was. Oh, I know Glenn Campbell thought super highly of him. Just for instance, and Glenn's a hell of a picker. Kind of like
3: was. an old blue tick hound. I like to lay around in the shade. I Ooh. may not have much money, but I damn sure got it made. Nice. And I ain't asking nobody for nothing. Mm. You leave this long-haired country boy alone, which mm. talks about smoking dope. Oh my. And drinking beer. Oh, I don't approve of that. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show.
0: Armstrong and Getty.
2: Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. One of the difficulties of talking about something Matt Taibbi has written is that he's such a good, solid writer, and he, there's so little fluff in what he writes, you don't know what to leave out. So He has
3: many thoughts in his head.
2: I'll, I'll hit you with a, ch- a chunk of his uh, his recent story on white fragility, in quotes, um, Actually, one of the more amusing parts of this article, which I'm going to leave out, is he absolutely blasts the hell out of this woman, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility.
3: Well, he calls the book horse-ass. It's the number one book in the country, and he calls it (laughs)
2: horse-ass. Yep, yep. So here's what Matt says in part. A core principle of the academic movement that shot through elite schools in America since the early 90s was the view that individual rights, humanism, and the democratic process are all just stalking horses for white supremacy. The concept, as articulated in books like former corporate consultant Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, reduces everything, even the smallest and most innocent human interactions, to racial power contests. I will depart from the text and tell you, I I find this book one of the most loathsomely racist things I've ever seen. It's been mind-boggling, he writes, to watch White Fragility celebrated in recent weeks. Then he gives some examples, including Jimmy Fallon gushing. Um, white fragility has been pitched as an uncontroversial roadmap for fighting racism at a time when, after the murder of George Floyd, Americans are suddenly inappropriately interested in doing just that. Except this isn't a straightforward book about examining one's prejudices. Have the people hyping this impressively crazy book actually read it? Impressively crazy. D'Angelo isn't the first person to make a buck pushing tricked up pseudo intellectual horse ass as corporate wisdom. But she might be the first to do it selling Hitlerian race theory, as in Adolf Hitler. White fragility is a simple message. There's no such thing as universal human experience. And we are defined not by our individual personalities or moral choices, but only by our racial category. Which is why I think this is one of the most aggressively racist things ever published. If your category is white, bad news. You have no identity apart from your participation in white supremacy. Here's a quote anti-blackness is foundational to our very identities whiteness has always been predicated on blackness which naturally means a positive white identity is an impossible goal that's a quote from the book imagine explaining that to the vikings you know and not the minnesota vikings but vikings in the year 632 you realize your whiteness is defined entirely by blackness they'd be, be like there are there are dark colored people
1: what They wouldn't have any idea, but no, they had no idea. Imagine teaching it to your kids today. You envision Vikings much more willing to engage in debate than I do. That's a good point. (laughs) Uh, Let's
2: see. D'Angelo instructs us that there's nothing to be done here except, quote, strive to be less white. To deny this theory or to have the effrontery to sneak away from the tedium of D'Angelo's lecturing, what she describes as leaving the stress-inducing situation is to affirm her concept of white supremacy. This intellectual equivalent of the ordeal by water, if you float, you're a witch, is orthodoxy across much of academia, which is scary. Our God, our universities are so perverse right now. Oh, my God. Well,
3: right, it's the idea that if people launch into this horse S, as he rightly called it, And you just roll your eyes in whatever and walk away. That's proof that you're a white supremacist. Right, right. D'Angelo's writing style. If you engage (laughs) and argue with it, of course that's proof you're a racist. So it's the whole, if you float, you're a witch. If you drown, well, you're drowned.
2: Right. D'Angelo's writing style is pure pain. The lexicon favored by intersectional theorists of this type is built around the same principle as George Orwell's Newspeak. It banishes ambiguity, nuance, and feeling, and structures itself around sterile word pairs like racist and anti-racist, platform and de-platform, center and silence, that reduce all thinking to a series of binary choices. Uh, Oh, sorry. Pages stuck together. I licked my finger. Probably got the vid now. Writers like D'Angelo like to make ugly verbs out of ugly nouns and ugly nouns out of ugly verbs. There are countless permutations on centering and privileging alone. In a world where only a few ideas are considered important, redundancy is encouraged. For example, to be less white is to break with white silence and white solidarity, to stop privileging the comfort of white people. Or Ruth Frankenberg, a premier white scholar in the field of whiteness, describes whiteness as multidimensional. And then he, uh, well, he talks more about her horrific writing style. But then uh, one key part of the book is where she addresses Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. One line of King's speech in particular, that day he might... Uh, that one day he might be judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin. It was actually his children he was talking about, but anyway. Was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend we don't see race and racism will end. Color blindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism, with white people insisting they didn't see race, or if they did, it had no meaning to them. That this speech, this is Taibbi now, that this speech was held up as the framework for American race relations for more than half a century precisely because people of all races understood King to be referring to the difficult and beautiful long-term goal is discounted, of course. White fragility is based on the idea that human beings are incapable of judging each other by the content of their character, and if people of different races think they're getting along or even loving one another, they probably need immediate anti-racist training. This is an important passage because rejection of King's dream of racial harmony uh, has become a central tenet of this brand of anti-racist doctrine mainstream press outlets are rushing to embrace.
3: Yeah, I love that angle of it. I uh, I was wondering over the weekend, because I heard another uh, thinker, this happens to be a right-winger, but a similar idea, that... Uh, the I Have a Dream speech was about how America has not lived up with its promise. You you know you wrote a promissory note and then you you've you know uh, defaulted on it. Right. To for Black America's, for Black America. Well, the new belief is no, America didn't have a promise that it didn't live up to. It was always racist from the beginning. the the The, the foundation is racism.
2: Mm-hmm. So they're re- the purpose is racism. Right.
3: So they're rejecting Martin Luther. Martin Luther King Jr.'s entire premise. I wonder at what point I really believe in the next couple of years we'll start to see MLK statues come down.
2: Wow. Wow. That he
3: will no longer be seen as somebody you can tolerate. Yeah. Because his, his view is not, well, as you just read there, his view does not match with the modern thinking of the most popular book in the country.
2: Right. Right. Well, and it is notable that liberals like Matt Taibbi and James Lindsay, the professor from Portland State, and then and Bill Maher and, and, and the whole list of them are terrified by these new theories because they know they will lead inevitably toward more racism, not less. More hatred, not less. More discrimination, not less. It's, it's absolute poison. And you people, you poor, overeducated, white guilters are drinking the poison. You're going to be part of the, the cause of terrible things in the future. Just one more note, uh, to illustrate how stupid this book is and how badly written it is. This is back to Matt Taibbi and we will post this piece at Armstrongandgetty.com. We're working on it right now. The most amazing, the book's most amazing passage concerns the story of Jackie Robinson, quoting from the book, uh, White Fragility. The story of Jackie Robinson is a classic example of how whiteness obscures racism by rendering whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. Robinson is often celebrated as the first African American to break the color line. While Robinson was certainly an amazing baseball player, this storyline depicts him as racially special, a black man who broke the color line himself. The subtext is that Robinson finally had what it took to play with whites, as if no black athlete before him was strong enough to compete at that level. Imagine if instead the story went something like this, Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. Well, you know, I could refute it, but uh, Taibbi has won awards, so I'll just read it. (laughs) There is not a single baseball fan anywhere, literally not one except perhaps Robin D'Angelo, I guess, who believes Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier because he, quote, finally had what it took to play with whites. Everyone familiar with this story understands that Robinson had to be exceptional, both as a player and as a human being, to confront the racist institution known as Major League Baseball. His story has always been understood as a complex, long-developing political tale about overcoming violent systemic oppression. For D'Angelo to suggest history should recast Robinson as the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball is grotesque and profoundly belittling. Robinson's story, moreover, did not render whites' white privilege and racist institutions invisible. It did the opposite. Robinson uncovered a generation of job inflation for mediocrity, white ballplayers. Well, that's kind of a distraction for baseball fans. But the point is, freaking nobody... Read that situation like Robin D'Angelo says everybody read it. Nobody. This book is phony, it's poison, it's garbage.
3: So he, he goes on in that article to get into the times that we're living in now, cancel culture and all that. People everywhere today are being encouraged to snitch out schoolmates, parents, and colleagues for thought crime. The New York Times wrote a salutary piece about high schoolers scanning social media accounts of peers for evidence of anti-black racism to make public, because what can go wrong with encouraging teenagers to start submarine, submarining each other's careers before they've even finished growing? Wow. There's a movement among high school kids, and the New York Times thought it was fantastic. Go through your your your, your other people in your class's social media accounts. Find the racism. Bring it forward so that they can be punished for it. And they quoted one kid uh, saying, I can't imagine, you know, somebody saying this and they go on to be a lawyer someday.
2: Yeah. Well, and what's incredibly dangerous, and you all know this, right, is that they brand everything racism. The word racism has now been twisted to mean or racist has been twisted to mean anybody who opposes us. So if racism is everything, racism is nothing. So they've, they've absolutely enabled real racists.
3: Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of
2: Armstrong and Getty. i like to welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show, uh, for the first time I believe as a guest in many, many years since she was a tiny little kid, uh, my daughter Delaney, uh I made a rookie mistake. I used a microphone that needed phantom power. Those of you in the music business, you know what I'm saying. We have switched mics and I think this will work. Can you say hello? Hello. Everybody. Ah, dang it, it's not working. What's the what
1: the? It's the phantoms. Yeah, phantom
3: power. Midnight. No, that's from Cats. Do I know a song from Phantom of the Opera?
1: Uh, operas are hard to to sing cuz they're mostly in other languages.
3: No, Phantom of the Opera is not like that. Phantom the Opera is not actually.
1: We sure it has
2: opera right in the name. <laughs> Boy, I hope you don't know that song. All right, well, listen, we'll share a mic for this segment. Okay. And then I'll figure out what's going on uh, in a minute. Don't are, worry, sweetie. Are you allowed to be Let's that close
3: to each mic. other in your own home?
2: Uh, yes, we uh-huh. are. And, and and go to hell if you don't like it. Um, <laughs> so uh, you can say hello again if you'd like.
0: Hello, everyone.
2: Uh, little D mentioned to me, it's been ages since you've talked to Jack.
0: Yeah, how are you doing?
2: I'm fantastic. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good. Quarantine's kind of got me down, but, you know, it is.
3: what. Yeah, to be your age and stuck in your parents' house, I can't even imagine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to that topic, that was the most popular question, and, uh, you know, it's cool, but so what do you think of school and your life being put on hold all of a sudden, and you got to live with mom and dad for (laughs) God knows how long?
0: In the nicest way possible. It sucks. <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs>
1: data data uh, supports that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the data,
3: data backs that up.
0: Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I have a really good relationship with both my parents, but um, no one wants to spend their 20s in their hometown. And it's, it's just being pulled out of an entire life you've made. And I know personally for me, that's a life on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of all of a sudden I'm telecommuting with a time difference of three hours. So it's just kind of every sense of normalcy is kind of gone.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah. Everybody that was young can fully relate to, yeah, I like my parents fine. That's good. I'm I'm an adult now. I'm out on my own. I got a life. I got lots of things I'm doing that I don't necessarily want to do around my parents. So.
2: Well, in my case, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to do it because, you know, I was getting after it with my friends. I mean, we were living large and the rest of it. Delaney has the, uh, the advantage of she comes home and the house is bumping.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a fun time. Uh, There's a lot of experiences that I might tell in a few years, but but right now. Hey,
2: this is all off the record. Wow. All right, you? (laughs) Well, hey, listen, I will tell you this, and, and Delaney knows this, it's... I feel bad. When I was 20 years old, I mean, to be yanked away from school and my friends and my band and my job and the rest of it, and all of a sudden i got to go live with Mommy and Daddy again. But is the, I, but is
3: the bar well, always open at the Getty household? I mean, does it ever close, yeah. or is it just like Vegas? It's pretty much 24
1: hours a day. There's no clocks on the wall. Yeah, no
3: clocks. <laughs> They're pumping oxygen let, into the rooms to keep everybody honey, awake.
1: Honey, let me handle that question. <laughs> now we're trying to be responsible. <laughs> my God. <clears throat> we're trying. Sometimes uh, the Canasta games go long, but.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you this, though, and uh, I will speak for myself, and Delaney can merely roll her eyes and move on to the next topic. Uh, the cool part of it is, is, um and this is true of my other two kids as well, is she is my offspring, but we're friends, and we're really good friends, which is cool, and it's been crazy fun to have her home because we have these verbal jousting matches um, just to keep ourselves sharp. And also we get to talk about the, uh, you know, the issues of the day and like some of the stuff you're studying right now, the war related stuff. You want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm currently in a class called, uh, law of law and ethics of war, um, at my school, which is taught by a, a major in the U S army, which is super cool. Cause it's actually someone with real world experience. um, but it's definitely a lot of the things we've been talking about have been pretty extreme topics, like whether or not drones should be allowed in war, whether or not... Uh, what do you
3: think about a drone strike on the head of the World Health Organization? Would that be legal or... Yes!
0: Oh, you're asking her. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to have to refer you back to yeah. my dad on that one. I like
3: the idea of it.
0: I don't I don't want my professor to hear this and, you know, it to impact my grade in any way. Uh but, yeah, it's a lot of real-world discussions that have definitely not been like any class I've ever taken before um, in college.
3: Hey, in terms of taking classes in general right now, what percentage of uh, normal are you getting in terms of the education you're getting, do you think? Do you feel like it's like doing the online thing is 80% of being there, uh, 60%, 100%?
0: So I think it would be really hard to give a percentage. In talk radio,
3: because- you make things up. That's uh, one thing you would learn.
0: <laughs> In um,
3: you act like yeah. you've done a study, and
0: of course, of course, uh, this is my one-person study. Yes, it's a large margin of error. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I'd say is. I am getting the same information, like the, the day-to-day knowledge. Yeah, that's being transmitted. Um, maybe it's harder to pay attention overall, but I'm getting that same info. The part that's harder and the part that I'd like to see more of is so much of the great things about going to school is being able to go to your professor after classes and have that 30-second conversation mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to go to office hours for. Right. It's like right. a lot of my enrichment and a lot of the professors i've made better relationships with it's just going up to them after class and that's not something i can do right now
3: i'm sure that's something that they could work out though i mean this was all thrown together this wasn't you know the the these the current way they're doing things wasn't a uh, planned but if you had a little time to think about it and a little more resources i'm sure they could come up with a way around that
2: right and also we've talked a little bit about how as the stage is different from radio which is different from tv the art of keeping people interested uh and riveted on a little computer screen is very different
1: than doing it live. Yeah, too, would you say
3: it was harder to pay attention? You mean there's more distractions at home with the all-night party, or uh,
1: uh-huh. just just to like staring at a computer screen is less engaging? Playing Animal Crossing on a second screen while the lecture is going on. <laughs> yeah.
0: I will not conform confirm nor deny any of that. Uh, <laughs> however, um it's definitely I think just staying engaged. My professors who they've now put in our participation grade. You have to have your webcam on. Those classes are going a lot better than the ones who have said it's optional. Uh. Because when it's <sighs> optional. Any not teacher
3: getting- who ever says this is optional. I might, even when I was a little kid, all the way through getting older, I always thought, you just told 90% of the people here they don't have to do it and they're not going to do it. All right. You're
2: just cheating yourself, Jack. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Done.
0: <laughs> There's that one person study again. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Well, hey, we had uh, listeners submit a bunch of questions for little D. Uh, which uh, perhaps in the next segment, she has chosen the one she would like to answer, and uh, why don't we do that? I have pre deselected some of the most embarrassing and/ or am- uh, abusive ones. Mm. Some of you people really need psychological help, although the vast majority have been quite nice and and, and lovely in spirit. There are so, people that
3: submitted questions to your daughter, yes, that you don't that you, that, that weren't nice. <laughs> no, from they were the terrible. internet, from the internet, <laughs> from social. You mean the people anonymously through Twitter did that? Yeah, I'm
2: shocked to the core. Yeah, I know, it's disappointing.
0: <laughs> Armstrong and Getty,
3: you're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show.